This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There is more to the story than just postpartum depression. This podcast aims to share it all, from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to new parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to the Mom and Mind podcast. I am your host, perinatal psychologist, Dr. Katayun Kayani. On this episode, we are going to be hearing from Jocelyn Lamb. She is a mother to an energetic, kind, and silly toddler. She's a second-generation immigrant growing up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and currently residing in Bay Area of California. Jocelyn is a licensed marriage and family therapist who helps folks with intersecting identities break intergenerational trauma cycles, particularly in the areas of parenting, reparenting, and body image. She has training through Postpartum Support International and is working towards her certified eating disorder specialization. In our conversation today, she's going to be sharing her personal experience and journey through parenting as a second-generation Chinese and Canadian immigrant. She shares with us how she was diagnosed with hyperemesis gravidarum when she was 12 weeks pregnant. She had to quit work to focus on her health, and in part because of that experience, she became depressed during pregnancy which did not set her up for a good postpartum experience. After her daughter was born, her daughter was diagnosed with a feeding aversion, and Jocelyn had a really difficult time breastfeeding. Even though they had all of the resources and the best clinicians in the area, she struggled through this and had a very intense depression and anxiety postpartum, in part because of the feeding challenges and how that hindered her attachment to her daughter. She talks about that journey, and now they're extremely close but obviously it was a very difficult path in pregnancy and into parenthood. Jocelyn is able to give a lot of insight along the way in her story and how things manifested for her and some of the reasons why things were difficult for her outside of the medical complications. For any of you who've been listening to the podcast for any bit of time and have heard a lot of personal stories, you may have also understood how complex our experiences are. There are a lot of things that go into our experience that intersect to make each person's experience unique. However, there are just so many things that are also relatable, even if it's not your own personal experience. So now we'll hear from Jocelyn. Welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm grateful that you wanted to come on and share a bit about your story. And also knowing, and we were chatting a bit before we started here, that even though this is your personal story, we as therapists just tend to kind of also explain things as we go along because it's just part of our process. So explain things in terms of mental health processes. And so I'm sure some of that will come in today. But I do yeah, also want to honor that you do work with this population and a population in perinatal mental health. And so you have a good amount of that professional background as well. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like being a therapist always, we were just talking about how like it's not our whole identities, but it definitely okay. informs the way that we move through the world, having done the work, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So given that though, I would love for you to start wherever you'd like about your personal story. Absolutely. So let me just introduce myself first. I'm Jocelyn. I am a second generation Chinese and Canadian femme. I moved to the Bay Area of California about 10 years ago. It's my 10 year reunion, the Bay Area, (laughs) which is very exciting. Really happy to be in this area. Mm -hmm. I'm a mom to a three-year-old daughter. I am also a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I also hang out on various platforms on the online book community. So I've done some podcasting work. I've done some YouTube work. I blog. I just love reading. So that's also a huge part of my life. Oh, that's fantastic. So I imagine your personal story brought you to this specialty. Yes. So a lot of the work that I do with clients and, and even also like in the online book community has really been informed by my journey, kind of like moving here, moving into parenthood, moving into the therapy work that I do. So first of all, like I mentioned, I am Canadian. I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, and Canada. If any of you are not familiar with Calgary, Alberta, Canada, it is kind of, I always like to tell folks that it's kind of like the Midwest of Canada, a little bit north of Montana. It's very much oil and gas country, cattle country, Calgary Stampede. If any of you have heard of that, it's like a big rodeo thing that happens every summer and also a big fair. But anyways, this is not the history of Calgary podcast, but that's a little <laughs> bit about where I grew up. And it is a very white and conservative area that I grew up in. And it still remains that way today, although there have been many steps taken in terms of visibility, representation, acknowledgement, and celebration of different communities there. But that is definitely how I grew up in Calgary. Uh, I remember that at every school that I went to, I was one of the only Asian students, if not the only Asian student in my class of anywhere between like 20 to 30 students, which was a very interesting experience. And also, I guess, gave me a lot to unpack as I moved through the world. Yeah. But I think that having internalized a lot of the things that I experienced, my parents experienced there in terms of especially just racism, and it doesn't have to be like overt racism, but all the microaggressions, et cetera, that we experienced there. Moving to the Bay Area was a huge culture shock. And I think that when I moved here, it was definitely, it was just, it was just a lot. I can't really tell you if it was positive or negative or probably somewhere in between, but there was definitely a lot to unpack. And I think in the past 10 years, just coming to terms with different parts of my identity, becoming a parent has allowed me to move through those processes and continue to move through those processes and will continue to do so in the future. Has really just informed the work that I do and the way that I, the way that I try my best to parent my daughter. Yeah, absolutely. Those are, I mean, the Bay Bay Area is quite a different culture, even from a lot of parts in the U.S. So I imagine you've been there 10 years, you said. Yeah. Yeah. I have been here 10 years. I feel like there is just so much celebration 
of identities, different communities that are formed. Mm -hmm. I I love that there is a huge queer community here, a queer community of color, like, Mm -hmm. and especially here in the East Bay, I live in the East Bay right near Oakland. So much celebration here. And I think that that is really important to just walk down the street and see folks that look like you, that see folks that maybe don't look like you, but are representing other communities. I just think that that's an area that I want my daughter to grow up in. And is really important to me. I've come to learn that, wow, I can be acknowledged here in every part of my identity. And like, that feels very good and authentic to me. Amazing. Amazing. I'm really glad in one way that you were able to start your parenting journey in that environment. And obviously it's given you some other things to explore in in going through that, the whole process of pregnancy through postpartum. Absolutely. I I think that a big part of it. So like I said, I'm a second generation immigrant. My parents immigrated here from East Asia. And I think a big part of their experience in Calgary was very much like informed by, and I don't want to say that this was their identity or Mm -hmm. that this is the label that I'm applying to my parents, Mm -hmm. but it was very much informed by that model minority stereotype that I feel like really, really at the core of it harms the Asian American community. But it really just is about, it really started in like the mid 1800s, if we're kind of doing some history here, where a lot of folks that were immigrating here from specifically East Asia and China were factory workers, railroad workers, and they were doing the same type and amount of work as white workers here, but they were earning less money. And that started this mindset of like, put your head down, pick up your bootstraps, work harder, work faster, produce more. And as all these, the slew of immigration acts that were passed that were really discriminatory towards specifically Chinese folks. And then the movement in the 1970s to differences in wage gaps closing. And a lot of this was attributed to that mindset of like, pick up your bootstraps, work harder, faster, produce more, very capitalistic at the core, really. But that formed this model minority mindset of Asian American folks, specifically Chinese folks, are submissive, unassuming, they keep your head down. And the big part of this that I think is harmful in general is that they're like law-abiding citizens, there's low crime rates, we don't do bad things, whatever it may be, that I really want to highlight is, and especially now we're in the month of May, it is AAPI Heritage Month. But I really also just want to bring light to the fact that these things really harm Black and Brown, especially low-income communities in the U.S., because then that also pits minority groups against one another, racial minority groups against one another, in that Asian American folks are have low crime rates, right? Don't do all these quote-unquote terrible things that really is a whole myth that really pits minority groups against one another and acts under the umbrella of white supremacy. So anyways... That's just the history of the model minority myth. But I feel like a lot of my parents' survival instincts really kicked in kind of growing up in, or sorry, not growing up, but as their experience as immigrants in Calgary, Alberta, in like the 70s, 80s, 90s, that that was really how they survived in that that area. My dad is a doctor and he really was the only... Asian American person on staff for a long time at the hospital. And he experienced some racism, some overt, some not overt, but he really was very much steeped in that mindset. And I saw a lot of that trauma passed down as I started to unpack it here to myself and my younger brother as well. Well, so with, with all of that kind of loaded, let's say in, in your experience and in your family history and in your history, how do you think, well, I mean, we have, we haven't really um, gotten to your pregnancy story yet, but I'm 
kind of jumping ahead a little bit, thinking about, hmm, I wonder about how all of this impacted your journey into parenthood. Um, <laughs> it was a rough one. <laughs> we'll uh-huh. start there. Yeah. I think that as a kid, when I, I feel like um, also in my work with clients, but just in like the folks that I'm friends with as well, a lot of, especially Chinese folks have said to me, like, we share this experience, right? This shared experience of my parents signed me up for piano and sports and this and that, and this and that. And it's just kind of like this exhaustive list of things that we do. And I think that that is a really core piece of the work that I do, right? Is that, (laughs) I say that the work that I do is that there's this big focus on the things that we do, the the things that we produce, how are we successful? How are we productive? Right. And Mm -hmm. because of that immigrant related trauma that was brought down by my parents, Mm -hmm. a lot of my value as a child was based around what I can do. How many awards can I win? I used to be an athlete, how many people I could beat, how I compared to the folks around me, these kids that were like six, seven years old. Right. Right. (laughs) All I knew was like how I was compared Mm -hmm. to these children. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that when I was a kid, I really internalized a lot of that competitiveness. Mm -hmm. I remember even when I was a little kid, it was written to my report card. Jocelyn has this great work ethic, but is so competitive. I feel like it really (laughs) encapsulated Uh, me as a kid. Yeah. (laughs) So I feel like a lot of that was my parents' stuff. Mm -hmm. that was just steeped into me. And Mm -hmm. as a kid, I didn't know any better, right? I just wanted to win all the time, right? I just wanted to be better than classmate A or classmate B. Mm -hmm. And it was less so of like a, hey, let's join together in the space. Let's relax. Let's just like Mm -hmm. hang out by the pool, right? And I also want to acknowledge that there is a certain modicum of like privilege, right? That it takes to be able to just hang out by the pool. Mm -hmm. But even just kind of like, let's take a breath together. Let's go to the playground and play, whatever it may be. I just never had that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think growing up, moving into the workforce, especially moving into my own identity as a parent, I really had to work hard to undo a lot of this, like my child's worth is based on how much they can produce, how much they are in relation to others, how much they are compared to others. And I really like, sometimes I even see that popping up in my own mindset right now of like, and this is something that we can, that we can totally talk about in my parenting journey. But my daughter was diagnosed with a pediatric feeding disorder. It really was this feeding aversion that she had. And this started around when she was three or four months old. And we took her to occupational therapists. We took her to speech pathologists. We took her to cranial sacral therapy, lactation consultants, anyone that we could get our hands on. We were like, we will take you there because what was happening was that when she would take a bottle, she would, or breastfeed, she would arch her back, scream, not eat. She would go for hours and hours on end just without eating and seemingly perfectly fine. It almost seemed like, as a therapist, I was like, it's just like a trauma response. Like, what is this? I, d- I don't know what's happening here. But it was really terrifying for me. We would go days just counting her wet diapers. We would weigh on our food scale before she drank the bottle, after she drank the bottle. We would record every single ounce of what she was drinking. I'm even like feeling in my body now, just like this like anxiety as I speak yeah. about it, which is really scary. And so I think that a big part of my journey into parenthood 
was the combination of the mindset of my child's worth and my worth as a mother is based on how good, quote unquote, a child she is, right? How well behaved, how kindly she can just kick her feet happily while she takes a bottle very peacefully when she eats a lot and she's peaceful and she sleeps a lot. That makes her a good child. And in turn, that makes me a good mother. That's the narrative that I had internalized at that time. And her being diagnosed with this feeding disorder really made me take a good hard look at like, how do I get through this without torturing myself in my own head? And that was really difficult. We had gone through that for maybe about like a year and a half to two years. Mm -hmm. It was a really terrible, dark time in our lives, I think. A lot of stress. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, You are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. And you, from what I understand, even before you got to that point, you had had a fairly stressful pregnancy, physically at least. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I think this is all one big journey of learning our bodies, learning how to Mm -hmm. relate to our bodies and Mm -hmm. how our past informs our presence. So during my pregnancy, I was also diagnosed with hyperemesis gravidarum, Mm -hmm. which is this terrible diagnosis where you just vomit all the time. And I feel like a lot of doctors that I talked to were just like, oh, it's just morning sickness, right? Mm -hmm. When I would talk to them at nine weeks about I'm vomiting every day. I feel terrible. The quintessential story that I tell people about my HG was that this one day I came home from work. I had this 
big craving for mozzarella sticks. And if people who know me know that I really dislike cheese. I've never liked cheese, which people are like, oh my gosh, you don't like cheese. I'm like, yeah, I don't <laughs> like cheese. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I had this huge craving for mozzarella sticks. So I drove to Safeway on the way home in my neighborhood Safeway, picked up all the ingredients for mozzarella sticks. I went home, made mozzarella sticks, which is also something completely out of character because I'm a mm-hmm. horrible cook. <laughs> but I made mozzarella <laughs> sticks in the oven. I had a whole bunch of them, maybe like eight to 10 mozzarella sticks. I was extremely hungry coming home after a day at work. I was like, this feels great. I love this. And I, after that, after eating those mozzarella sticks, number one, probably very difficult on my stomach, having not been a cheese eater for many years of my life, but also just went to the bathroom and violently vomited for maybe the next five to six hours. Once actually vomiting so hard that I hit my head on the toilet and blacked out for some amount of minutes. And my husband was horrifically worried about me. Yeah, of course. This was not a good situation for me. But that is kind of the story that I tell folks that it's not just that you throw up a little bit in the morning and then you kind of go about your day, that there's this cap on morning sickness and then it, it kind of ends. But this was a constant thing for me. It was all day, all night. It was actually really terrible because a lot of folks would come up to me as I was struggling to even get keep anything down throughout those first maybe 28 weeks of pregnancy. Folks would actually come up to me and be like, wow, you don't look like you're pregnant. And I'm Uh, like, that's because I literally can't do anything besides throw up. (laughs) And it really, I think, hindered or had me start questioning, like, what is my worth as a mother? Right. If I can't even look pregnant to other people, Mm -hmm. if I can't Mm -hmm. even prove my pregnancy to other people that I've worked so hard to create like this nurturing environment for my daughter, right. Like inside my uterus, my little uterus home for her. Right. Mm -hmm. If I am struggling so hard, even questioning, like, am I doing the best thing for her? Am I eating enough? Am I eating Mm -hmm. the right things? What do I do Mm -hmm. if this keeps happening to me? Mm -hmm. It really had me questioning just my entire, like, what does it even mean to be a mom? Am I doing a good job? And that started even when she was a tiny little, tiny little bean at nine weeks old. So that, that kind of comment from people started fairly early on. Yeah, that kind kind of comment from people really did start very early on. I I think that it didn't, those comments didn't truly maybe start until maybe like second trimester, first trimester. I I feel like people have this narrative in their mind, right? Where women don't start showing or pregnant folks don't start showing until second trimester, third trimester, whatever it may be. But I remember kind of very clearly um, as I was leaving my job because I was too sick to work anymore, that they would be like, oh my gosh, like, I can't even tell you're pregnant. You're sick. I can't even tell that you're sick. It was horribly invalidating and obviously no offense meant to those folks, right? I'm sure that they only had the best of intentions, but it was, it was horribly invalidating to me that I was struggling so much to even Mm -hmm. get to work every day. Mm -hmm. I remember one day I was going to work and I have to drive on the highway of a big long commute to work. So live in the Bay area. But as I was driving to work, I was vomiting and driving at the same time. And I was like, I just need to get to work. There's no other option for me to engage with here because I, I I have to exist in the state. This is what's been assigned to me. And so I just remember like those, those comments as I was leaving, I was working at a school at that time. I was a school therapist where folks were like, wow, like you were doing such a good job. I can't even tell. Like, <laughs> it's not a good thing to say to me at this time, but of no. course with the best of intentions, but yeah, I, I really found that invalidating. It's in like, wow, like no, no one sees me right now. Absolutely. While well, you're just suffering. I mean, that's like, it's it's hard to function at all in that state. And like as I'm just saying that right now, I mean, there's you had mentioned several layers of things that that people have to push through just 
just to be in a society, in a capitalistic society in particular, of you just grin and bear it and do the whole like bootstraps thing, but also this the kind of like your production of some of your family history and cultural history. And they're also just like push forward, do the thing, do your job, be productive. It's, it's really hard to push past when you're, I mean, it's hard to continue to push past when you're just feeling so sick all the time. Absolutely. I think even when I was a kid, just as you were kind of saying that, what came up for me was actually when I was a kid, this was probably terrible on many levels, but I remember my mom would always send me to school when I was sick. And I was like real sick, like with a fever, I would be having all these symptoms in class. Like my head was spinning. I remember trying to read this thing in third grade when I was at school and just like sniffling and I had no tissues left. I was wiping my nose on my sleeve and I went home to my mom and she was like, you did so good being at school and being so sick. Good for you. And that is how I was praised when I was a kid, right? Of like, Mm -hmm. even though you were horrifically sick, you still Mm -hmm. did. You Mm -hmm. still were doing, you were still producing, right? You still went to school, you went to work. And that that's kind of what my self-image was growing up. And and my self-worth was kind of based around this. Wow. You did this, even though you were like, actually had 103 fever Mm -hmm. at the age of seven, right? This is not good for me in any way, suffering at school. There was nothing at school that I needed to learn that day that, that I use in my daily life now, right? No need for me to be there. But what that really instilled was that there's obviously everyone pop psychology, right? Self-care, right? Self-care this, Mm self-care that, go to the spa, right? Whatever it may be. It's really commodified. Mm -hmm. It's very capitalized upon right now, right? But I think what I needed to learn as a kid and what I needed to learn or what part of my learning process through having HG, my daughter's feeding disorder, et cetera, et cetera, was that self-care doesn't need to be like, I need to take time off of parenting and my job to go to the spa, or I need to put on a face mask at the end of the day and put my feet up and watch some reality TV, although I do enjoy much reality TV (laughs) and I do enjoy putting my feet up a lot. But I think what I needed to learn my self-care was really unlearning this, like, you can do this even though Mm-hmm. You can produce even though all of this stuff is going mm-hmm. on. It's number one, the acknowledgement of like, wow, like your hardships are real. Yeah. The things that you're going through are real and they deserve care. Mm-hmm. They deserve time and space and for you to just be and exist mm-hmm. instead of do and produce. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is another kind of layer living in the Bay area would live right by Silicon Valley, right. Mm-hmm. Which is extremely competitive. It's the tech industry. I've just yeah. heard stories and stories of folks burning out, right. And working with professionals that are Asian American that work in Silicon Valley, There's another layer to that where it's like the mindset of you need to produce plus this extremely high pressured environment of like, wow, we have so much to do here. Right. But going back to what I was talking about, I think my self-care was like, I can take time off. A couple of weeks ago, I took time off and I felt so bad to me inside, (laughs) but I did it. And I think that was like a huge thing for me was that Mm -hmm. like, yes, you can work. 48 weeks out of the year, 50 weeks out of the year, but like to actually learn how to relax during the time off that I take and to actually take the time off first and foremost was that was me learning that I don't need to do even though X, Y, Z. So uh, throughout your pregnancy, were you dealing with HG the whole time? I dealt with 
the HG pretty much, I want to say up until like 28 to 32 weeks. It was very constant. I would say up until about 28 to 32 weeks. There was a little bit of relief at that time. I remember around 28 to 32 weeks, the the biggest, I want to say accomplishment, but that that is my that is my productivity <laughs> mindset speaking. But I think maybe one of the things that sticks out to me the most during my pregnancy was that I was able to go to in and out Californians love it. <laughs> Being very stereotypical Bay Area right now, but I went to In-N-Out and I was Mm -hmm. able to eat an order of fries and I was like, there are fries in my stomach right now. This feels so nice. And I just remember that every day after I took my walk, because I wasn't working at this time because I was too sick and also other stuff I was working with in the school year. My daughter was due in November, et cetera, et cetera. But because I was taking some time off, I would go to In-N-Out a lot of times a week and I would just order some fries. And I'd be like, as long as I can keep these fries down today, I'm going to feel okay, right? No matter what happens. And I think that that was maybe one of the first steps in my relearning process of like, this is what it means to nurture my body. This it, this is what it means to acknowledge my body. This is what it means to nourish myself at this time. And it doesn't mean, again, a face mask and a spa day or whatever it may be, but this is where I'm at right now. And like, that's Okay. And it took a long time for me to learn that. I'm still kind of relearning that. But maybe that was the first step of like me just sitting it in and out, eating a thing of French fries was like, I can have a different relationship with my body. I don't know what that looks like, but maybe this is the first step there. Right. And it it becomes incredibly complex and the relationship with the body anyways during pregnancy and postpartum, but let alone having this massive physical condition to, to be dealing with daily, multiple times a day. Yeah, it was it was really terrible. I, I I think that just looking back at it now, it really had me questioning my worth, like I was saying, kind of like as a mother, as a pregnant person at that time, because there's this this myth that pregnant folks should be glowing, right? They it's the pregnancy glow, right? You need to have a perfectly round belly, right? And that was not my experience whatsoever. My experience was dragging my butt out of the house, going to in and out, staring at my feet, which were in slippers at the time, maybe wearing some form of pajamas, top and bottom, or just top and bottom, whatever, <laughs> top or bottom, whatever it may be that day. And just getting down that order of French fries, right? If I could do that that day, that would feel good to me. It would be nourishing my body. I'd be intaking something and that was okay. And I think that people's comments around me, like you don't look pregnant, like you look so great. There was just all of this stuff that society tells. You're not supposed to look pregnant when you're Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You're not supposed to look pregnant, but yet you are supposed to look this very certain way when you're pregnant, right? It's ridiculous. it's absolutely ridiculous. And I, I had to kind of learn to shut all of that out mm-hmm. during that time and and learn like, okay, I can pay attention to this one very specific need that my body has, regardless of what other people say, regardless of my own internal narrative of what pregnancy has to look like at that time. So it really started early for me, the process of dismantling what my self-worth was, what my body image was as a parent and as a pregnant person. And so how did this carry through birth and postpartum? Oh my gosh, this is so complicated. I think that it was, I don't want to say like the perfect marriage of stuff, but I think that because I had started dismantling all this body stuff, all this body stuff around how femme bodies, around pregnant bodies should be, around how babies' bodies should be, God forbid. I mean, that's a whole other, a whole other thing. But when my daughter was born, we had feeding issues 
pretty much from the get-go. We had issues with breastfeeding, then kind of three months later, the feeding disorder diagnosis. And I also found that even during that time, that I was getting a lot of body image comments from a lot of folks, right? From older Asian American folks, it was like, your child needs to be fat and chubby and plump and the skin needs to be supple, right? Everything needs to be like this bouncy, rolly, happy baby, right? So there is also that. And there is also some of that in Western cultures as well, right? But there is also, and I just noticed this, that a lot of folks start talking about weight and height and body shape of babies, two months old, three month olds, Mm -hmm. everything. So it comes at you when you are straight out of the womb. And I noticed, and I'm still trying to dismantle this, right. Of like, we don't need to make comments about the bodies of babies because that became another point of comparison was that when my daughter had the feeding disorder, it was really difficult for her to stay on her growth curve. And that was combined with like, I need to produce and do, and my daughter needs to be the perfect baby and I need to be the perfect mother, but that people are constantly talking about weight and height and growth curves. And we're going to the doctor every two weeks, right? Because she's not putting on weight and is my breast milk enough, right? Is it high enough in calories? Do I need to calorie enrich her formula, right? So my whole world was weight and calories and comparing with other babies. Is she like other babies that are similar height and weight? It was just so much surrounding her body and my body that it was everything that I thought about constantly all the time. And I think that a part of my work, and I don't want to really use the word thankful because to be thankful for HG to be thankful for my daughter's feeding disorder doesn't really seem like the right fit here. But I think that that allowed me very early to start unpacking some of the things and it really informs the way that I talk about food with my daughter now, now that she can speak, now that she can process things, now that she can really hear and absorb and internalize the things that I'm talking about is that at the dinner table, we're not part of the clean plate club and go about your day, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to eat specific things. We don't have to eat a certain amount of specific things, but that I, I trust her body. And that was one of the things that I really learned was that like, what does it mean to me to trust not only my body, mm-hmm. but also trust that she knows her body? Like, whoa, how complicated, right? Like just very, huge. very difficult, especially I think in, in like our generation, so to speak, our parents didn't have the kind of knowledge that we don't, there, there's certain things that are carryovers from their generations and their histories that were taught to us. And we've learned quite a bit in our generation about these kinds of things. So, but to many of your points earlier, and same here, is that we, we weren't taught to listen to our intuitive body and, and even to listen to our intuition. There's like, okay, maybe there's something there, but you need to overwrite it with all of this other stuff. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. So it's quite a thing to be like the parent who's healing and give your child the thing that you may have needed yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think, again, to a lot of the points that we were talking about earlier, right, the immigrant trauma that was maybe Mm -hmm. passed down from my parents' generation of like, there were probably a lot of things that their bodies were telling them, not even necessarily related to food, but just in general, right? Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of these things that came about in the ways that they behaved and the way that that they parented us that was really kind of just like survival mode, right? They Mm -hmm. were in survival mode. And just kind of reflecting on my own experience going through HG, experiencing parenting my daughter through her feeding disorder was that a lot of times like I was in survival mode, just kind of recovering from birth, recovering from HG, all just kind of navigating that with her was that like my survival instincts were coming out. And because of the way that trauma is passed down, right? I saw a lot in my survival instincts that was reflected for my parents' survival instincts. And so me, obviously, as a therapist, had to start to unravel all of that for myself. I had to really look at, like, how do I want my daughter to look at herself? How do I want her to empower herself? How do I want her to love herself, right? And obviously, that that is maybe, quote unquote, the goal, but it's maybe not to love yourself every day, right? But it's to acknowledge whatever state of life you're in, whatever state your body's in, and like, that's okay, wherever you're at right now. So I think that a lot of folks, it's it, the dinner table is a hard place to be, right? There's so much that we have to unpack about the way that our parents taught us about food, all the things that society has taught us about food and our body. But I think that the way that now I like to at least approach the dinner table is that we just want to, you know, acknowledge the food that we have. We want to acknowledge whatever state our body's in right now, right? Maybe we're tired. We just don't want to sit there and deal with all the sensory stuff, right? She doesn't want to learn how to cut up her vegetables that day. It's fine motor skills, right? Fine motor skills are hard for a three-year-old, even hard as a 30-year-old, right? It's hard. Sometimes I don't want to do that. Maybe Uh the food is touching, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. people are talking, maybe it's too loud, right? Maybe the food just is not the right texture for her that day, right? Whatever it may be, whatever stage your body's right now. Like it's okay to be like that, right? Maybe sometimes she's coming home after soccer. She's ravenous, right? You can totally have a second helping. That's totally, totally legit here, right? I'm more than happy to give you that. So it's just really about like understanding our body's messages, what our bodies are trying to tell us and being like, how can I nurture that and acknowledge that and listen and respond in a way that's appropriate. Sure. And that that's beautiful. And I love that you can give that to her and I'm sure healing for you at the same time. And also in particular, I think in the postpartum period where you're sleep deprived and um, now trying to, to learn the kind of nursing feeding bottles, like how are we going to do this fog of stuff? Like it's, it's really hard to be in touch at all with what, what you need because you're trying to 
feed a child and somehow also get through the day yourself. So what was that impact like on you sort of mentally, emotionally during that time? Honestly, it was really rough. It was, I don't want to say like one of the worst times of my life because, and and not to like play oppression Olympics here, but like there's Mm -hmm. definitely like harder stuff that I, I think I've endured, but I think that maybe it was like the foggiest time of my life, I think would be an accurate description of that. I couldn't really tell you what I did from day to day. I think my whole day was spent heating up bottles, like weighing milk. Oh gosh, I feel my body just like having a reaction like here as I sit here and talk about it in my room safely away from any formula and bottles right now. But my whole day was just consumed with, I remember like my lactation consultant wanted me to film myself giving my daughter a bottle. So I had my best friend of now like 15, 17 years Angel, I adore her, film me giving my daughter a bottle on my bed. And I felt very scrutinized. And I know that like this was necessary, right? In order to like help her feed and nourish her body at that time. But I just remember that that was my whole day before and after weighings. Is she latching properly? Am I using the right bottle? Is it venting properly? Am I calorie enriching her formula properly? I think honestly that that was what my whole day was consumed with. So they're really, (laughs) it's funny as, as you kind of ask that question, like, how did you find space for yourself? I don't think there was much of myself at that time. And I say that in a way that is not like disempowering or not acknowledging of what I was experiencing, but I just don't remember that there was very much of a self at that time. And I think that that really hits hard now because like I do a lot of like family systems related work and at the core of family systems work is the self, right? This very integrated whole self. I I don't even know like what that self looks like right now because it was just so consumed by all of these things. And there wasn't like a lot of like acknowledgement, I think, from a lot of clinicians and professionals that we were working with, apart from a couple that were fantastic, which is another layer of it. But but really, I think maybe the summation of all of that is like there, there wasn't much of a self at that time, honestly. It was just sun up to sun up to sundown, just being in survival mode. There wasn't much of me that existed in that space. So, I mean, I hear you had the support of your very good friend, and I don't know if your family moved over here with you or not, but what other kind of support did you have during that time in the postpartum period? Yeah, I think that this was another kind of point for me was that a symptom of some of the immigrant related trauma that I think that I've unpacked, like in my own therapy, et cetera, was like this hyper independence right? That can, that can kind of come about from, from trauma, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that that was a big part of me, right? Like I can do this myself, right? If I just do a little bit more, if I just learn a little bit more, if I just look up different ways to calorie enrich my daughter's formula, right? That was kind of where I was at right now. But what I really learned during that period was that I can have community and it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of like you were at a deficit or you were inferior or you couldn't do this. So now you need to shamefully reach out to help from other people. And I think that this is a big point just being like acknowledging the work that I do with Asian American folks is that there's a statistic that goes around that I love to tell folks is that there's significant amount of Asian American folks that reach out for mental health help 
less than the general population. I think the statistic is around eight to 9% of Asian American folks that reach out for mental health help, as opposed to like 18% of the general population. So there is this big part of like generational shame, generational, like I can't ask for help because this means something directly inherently bad about me. And that was a part of my relearning process in that really dark time postpartum dealing with my daughter's feeding disorder was that like having a community is good for me. Having a community can be so helpful. It can help me thrive and survive a little bit less and (laughs) not that much less, but a little (laughs) bit less. It can, whether it's in the city that I live in, community that, that I live in, there is this really healthy, thriving network of parents. And they really started on Facebook. It's like the year that my daughter was born in, in 2018, like parents or whatever it may be. And it's it's just people meet through Facebook. We organize like park walks, go to restaurants for lunch, not restaurants, maybe just like a counter service kind of thing, not like a sit down full on thing <laughs> with our babies, but like a walk in the park, let's meet up at the playground, come to my house. I can go to their houses pre-COVID obviously. But I think just like having that community, that local community, folks were we can just like, hey, I really need someone to just walk around the block with me, right? I really need just someone to go to the store and pick up some kids' Advil for me because we're really struggling right now and no one is in the house with me. I think learning to build that community was a really helpful, this is going to sound really robotic, but it was like a helpful skill to learn. And it was a helpful thought process to learn of like, this does not make me bad. This does not put me at a deficit. This is actually something that I can celebrate and engage with and is a way that I can nurture that part of myself that I never got to learn and nurture when I was a kid. Impactful and powerful learning and healing and transitions. And so there's so many things in there that in a way that I think really not many other phases of life do is like becoming a parent really holds up a mirror to us in, in these ways that sometimes are incredibly painful. And also if if you can get the support that you need or at least process it in a way that's helpful for you, a lot of transformation and healing can happen that it doesn't happen overnight and sometimes takes like years and years and years, but still it's, it can set off this, this process of uh, reevaluating who you are in the world and how you are in the world, because maybe what worked for you before is not going to work in this new context. And, and it sounds like you were able to have a lot of that transformation. Totally. I think that actually Really that I think just what you just said really informs actually a lot of the work that I do like as a therapist Mm -hmm. is that like the things that were protecting us when we were in survival mode before Mm -hmm. our bodies don't know sometimes that we're not in that survival mode, or maybe we do know cognitively, but our bodies don't know. And sometimes certain things, certain triggers can bring us back to that space. And like, it's okay that our bodies kind of reenact that, right? Because our bodies don't know. It's just kind of acting on the things that it does know or thinks that it knows. But the process is about kind of like reassuring our bodies of like, hey, we're not there anymore. Like, it's okay that the things that we've learned that have protected us aren't serving us anymore. And that was a huge part of my unlearning and relearning process. And kind of to to what we were talking about before in terms of support, I also just really wanted to mention that we have a really great network of like postpartum support groups. So I went to this one postpartum support group. I The name is totally escaping my brain right now, but it was free. It was once a month and I actually met one of my really close friends there. And it was from 7 to 8.30 at night. I remember it was at someone's house. It was a free support group. And I was like, 
I can't do anything today, but I will go to my postpartum support group. And then there was also this other postpartum support group that again was free that was hosted by a community of midwives in my city as well that I went to. And while they weren't necessarily like therapeutic for me, because I just wasn't in that headspace of like, I want to unpack this. I want to be in therapy right now. It's just in survival mode, but it was really a source of community for me. I met folks there. I actually worked with one of the people that was running the group for individual therapy for a while and did some EMDR work with her, which was really helpful at that time as well. So yeah, I think in terms of support, building that community, really was made up of like the postpartum support groups that I went to. Again, I just wanted to acknowledge like even those those some of those clinicians were not helpful or very informed in the things that I needed there. And those were things that I could access that some of them were like free from the county, some of them were free through other means. And we are like in a place of privilege where we are able to access health insurance. So some of the things were covered by insurance, et cetera. So we did have the support of those clinicians. Plus I think the epitome of this is really, that's not the word that I was looking for, <laughs> but just the, I think the cornerstone, I think of this was the community of parents that I met on Facebook that were local, that I could just pop over and walk around the block maybe for Mm -hmm. 10 minutes or so. I think that that was really the most helpful part of all this. And also, of course, shout out to my husband, the most supportive person you will ever find on the planet, (laughs) the kindest person. Not that we did not have our spats postpartum because I was not a kind person (laughs) in those moments. But I think relearning together and his willingness to come on the relearning process with me, I think has been invaluable for our relationship, our marriage, and also the way that we parent our daughter. We're definitely by no means perfect folks, perfect parents, but just engaging on that journey, I think has been so healing and so soothing for us as a family. I mean, I'm glad you guys were able to transition together in those ways. So in terms of all that you went through and gone through, and it sounds like you're still, as we all are, working through stuff, from what people are, are able to hear about your journey today, what are some key takeaways that you have that you really want people to understand about what your experience uh, was like? Yeah, I think that in the comments that we say to other folks, I think that it's really important to be mindful of like, it's not about the way that a pregnant person looks. It's not about how much a baby weighs, right? It's really about like, hey, how are you really doing today? When having a community of folks that asked me that, having the opportunity to ask other folks that I think was so incredibly healing, right? Because that made it less about how can you do, how can you produce, how can you be this perfect person and more about like, Hey, how are you? How can you be today? Are you even being today? Is there a you today? How can I help you out? Right. So I think that number one, just like having a community has been so helpful. And I I also just want to like, (laughs) this isn't like a beacon of hope kind of moment, but, Uh but I think that also, I, I also just want to say that there are so many things coming out of the media that have been so helpful in healing some of those like generational trauma wounds that I think that we've talked about today, not only in terms of like body image, pregnancy, postpartum, et cetera, but just about the whole parenting journey in general. I think that Disney has done a really good job, although Disney has been problematic in other ways Uh of coming Mm -hmm. out with points of media that folks have really connected to lately. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what this whole thing is about is just like finding points of connection can be so healing. It's not Mm -hmm. a point of shame or like it doesn't have to be a point of shame even though that's a narrative that a lot of API folks have been told, right? Is that like, 
you're not working hard enough, asking for help is a point of shame that we really are starting to undo. And again, starting, I think is the key word there. Mm-hmm. But I just want to point out that like Encanto, Turning Red have done such a fantastic job of starting to unpack that and starting the conversations there. I can't even tell you the number of conversations that I've had with clients that are like, I watched Encanto last weekend and I started <laughs> sobbing and I knew right. that I was going right. to talk to you about it today. Totally. Or like I watched Turning Red and seeing that mom cry was just like a huge point that I wanted to bring to session today. So I think that just like finding points of connection, even if it is like, for example, maybe your kid is not eating that day, right? Maybe you were having a really bad body image day. Maybe some parent wounds are coming up, whatever it may be that it doesn't necessarily need to be like, I need to go and find people right away, right? Sometimes it is just about feeling seen in any number of ways through media. Maybe it's a partner, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's just kind of like, I don't know, any number of ways. It doesn't have to be exactly the things that we talked about today, because obviously some of the things that I mentioned were coming from a place of privilege, having health insurance, right? Being connected to clinicians. But there are so many ways that we can celebrate the roots where we come from while also acknowledging that like, hey, maybe we can be on a different journey right now. What does that look like? How can we start to heal that? Where can we find connection? I think those are the those are the things that I think I've learned throughout my journey, pregnancy, postpartum, and through parenting. That's lovely. And it does in some ways for for people who, you know, I ha- haven't been on that journey or are trying to figure out how to be on that journey. Those are points of of connection, as you said, that they can start with. So I, I appreciate you giving that perspective and that bit of hope and lifeline to folks who um, may be feeling some of the things that you've described today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on with us and sharing your story and giving such beautiful insight also at the same time to your process and things I think that a lot of people who are listening can really connect with. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you again, Jocelyn, for coming on to share your story If any of you out there have resonated with this in any way or know anyone who can resonate with this, please do share. The other thing you might know from this podcast so far is that the more we hear from people and their experiences and the more we're able to share these stories, the more it can be reducing stigma and supporting people who are having a really hard time feeling connected. They might be feeling alone. So hearing a story like Jocelyn's or the many others that have been shared on this podcast can help people to get to the resources they need. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. 
you get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.